Welcome to Courage and Spice, the podcast for humans with self-doubt. I'm Sass Petherick and this is episode number 50, The Big 7 Risks. Hello everyone, how are you? There is a definite shift in the air this week. It's all new pencils and stationery and cardigans being pulled out of storage. I know it's a bit of a cliche to be an autumn person these days, but frankly, I don't care. I am hanging out for misty mornings and leaves everywhere. Um, I think possibly, the, and this gives you some insight into the place we're renting, the best part of the place we're renting that we're very grateful for, uh, while our house is being renovated, is this massive oak tree that's sitting right, so, right outside our bedroom window. And it's just so lovely to open the curtains and to see it begin to change. It's in completely beliefed right now, and there's just a small hint of colour that's coming through, which is glorious. So yeah, I just bloody love this time of year. I feel the most creative, the most myself at this time of year. I'm I'm just really loving it right now. So, and it may, I guess, be no coincidence that uh, this is episode 50 of the podcast. It's two years to the day since I first uh, launched the podcast uh, in the beginning of September in 2017. So I thought it might actually be quite fun to revisit that first episode, which was called The Five P's of Self-Doubt, because my theory around that process is changing and evolving, expanding. And I thought it would be fun to kind of share with you my updated version of um, of this this idea and how it's uh, where it's kind of taking me and how it might be able to help you. So like any good researcher, it's possibly helpful for me to begin by explaining my epistemology or how I believe we come to know things. Now, this is a key part of any academic thesis because you're offering the reader some context for your research. Now, I remember when I first embarked on my master's research, being asked to write this, to actually state what is your philosophy about the theory of knowledge, like how do we know something is true? And it kind of blew my mind that there was not just one perspective on this that actually there is an entire spectrum of, of belief systems that we all eventually form. But they're often unconscious and we're not quite sure why we think something's true. It just feels true to us. So being required to quite robustly justify this is my position and this is why was, um, was quite uh, disconcerting. But actually now I sort of feel like Anyone who is sharing their ideas in public should be required to do this, right? They should have to say, this is why I believe this is true, which is kind of exhausting and probably quite annoying. But I think there is a lot of just opinions out there in the world that are being reported as truth right now. And I think this has huge implications for anyone who does actually care about having an evidence basis for what we put out into the world. So all I can do is show up in a way that feels full of integrity for me. So I want to share with you that I am a social constructivist. That's the kind of name given to the sort of a, a epistemological stance that, um, that folks who are aligned with my view of the world would take. 
So I believe that reality is created and given meaning by each of us. So therefore, any research I'm involved around is really about interpreting a reality that's quite dynamic and subjective and personal and always evolving. So it also means that whenever I'm putting together different sources of data, I'm doing it from a perspective of interpretation. So I'm not reporting the truth, I'm just saying, given these conditions, these people experienced this, and this is the stories they've told me. And those collective stories, I believe, allow us to make some informed assumptions about what might be happening, what might be true. There's something quite magic for me about sharing uh, the collective pattern of a series of stories that have been translated into kind of measurable or coded data that allow us to see our own stories reflected. And this is how I created the the self-doubt archetypes process. And I can't tell you how many times people have called me a witch, right? But if you see yourself reflected in a particular archetype, it's because they are the patterns I've seen in the data and the stories I've collected. So because I'm a social constructivist, I don't have a fixed perspective. Um, it's quite a, um, a postmodernist take, I guess. Not to get too technical in the language because I don't think it matters that much, but, but the idea of postmodernism is that there are many truths, many perspectives on a single uh, experience or, or a single entity. So I'm, um, I'm not ever trying to say this is the truth. What I'm trying to say is this is a truth and it may reflect your truth. So I'm quite reasonably detached from anything being certain or repeatable or measurable. Um, now for those uh, quantitative uh, researchers out there who believe there is a single source of truth, you know, I'm seen as the kind of uh, lackadaisical, lazy thinker, right? Um, but that's okay. I'm, I'm good with that. Um, but as I learn more and more about self-doubt, as I work with more people and understand more about how each of us experience and respond to self-doubt in different ways and in different areas of our lives, my understanding is growing and evolving. And it's doing that in a way that is just about gathering more stories to add uh, more informed assumptions about what might be happening. So my first principle is always um, that the story is the tr is the tr is a truth, and that that f helps to form a collective story, um, which is really cool. It's a way of being able to just kind of add more into the mix and allow the theory itself to grow, which I think is is quite fun. So now you kind of know the stance I'm taking and where I'm coming from with this. Let's revisit the five P's and talk more about how this theory of mine is evolving. So two years ago in the first podcast episode, I shared with you my framework for how I see self-doubt showing up for us, that it feels like we are often trapped in a loop. And this loop begins because we imagine something we're about to do, something we want or something we know we need to do. And it doesn't matter how big that task is, we will invite self-doubt in when going through with the task feels vulnerable, when it really matters to us or when there is some sort of psychological risk involved. Now, I used to think that this was a kind of 
amorphous cloud of risk. But actually, the work that I've been doing over the last few months is giving me some more clarity around that sense of psychological risk. And I found that there are actually seven key risks that ignite our self-doubt. Now, these are what I call the big seven risks, and they are rejection, conflict, success, judgment, failure, complexity, and disappointment. So I'm doing quite a lot of poking around into the big seven at the moment to sort of validate these risks, to try try and test out my thinking a little bit. And what I'm finding is that it can be super helpful to identify the big seven risk that is present whenever you're experiencing self-doubt. So going back to the loop and just kind of taking you through that as we go. So we're thinking about something we want or we need to do. And there is a big seven risk present. So self-doubt gets kind of ignited. We experience a kind of self-doubt alarm. And this might feel disproportionate or illogical or overwhelming, particularly if the task we're wanting to achieve is relatively simple. You could just be responding to an email or posting on Instagram or talking to your kid's teacher. But remember from the last episode in the podcast when we talked about reality as neutral? Those situations are just neutral. They're just things. We can decide how we're going to respond to them. Now, if we interpret that reality as being risky, as containing risk, then we're going to respond in a way that is all about mitigating that risk. So you might experience a critical voice or images of the past or predictions of the future, difficult emotions, body sensations, um, a kind of overwhelming thought stream. Now, the reason that this is happening is your self-doubt is trying to protect you, right? This alarm is designed to feel this horrible because your alarm is warning you about the risk. It is trying to protect you from it. Self-doubt's entire purpose is to find a squillion different ways to say, don't do that, you might hurt yourself. So if there's one learning you take away from this episode, it's this. Your self-doubt is trying to protect you from the big seven risks. And it's probably not doing it in a way that's particularly helpful especially if you're trying to bring your goals and dreams to life. But all your self-doubt tells me is that you have found really effective ways to keep yourself psychologically safe. What is super important to remember is that your self-doubt cannot predict if the risk is true. It's just going to be responding based on what has always worked in the past. So it's often disproportionate. It's often talking to you in words like never, always, everyone. It is an absolute alarm. It's on or it's off. Which makes self-doubt an entirely suboptimal set of conditions for making any kind of decision about how you're going to respond to any given context as a thinking adult. Now, I first started looking at the big seven risks because I was quite fascinated with the concept of psychological safety. And this has become something that we talk about a lot these days, 
sometimes in ways that are a bit uncomfortable for me. It's the kind of mocking of a stereotypical snowflake millennial who popular culture would have us believe are fatally crushed by the thoughtless use of the wrong pronoun, which is a total shame because I think psychological safety is an incredibly useful and valid phenomena. Now, my interest was sparked after reading about a project, a research project called Project Aristotle a few years ago. Now, this was a piece of organisational research conducted by Google. They brought in a team of psychologists to study their highest performing teams. Google wanted to understand if there were qualities or characteristics of their top teams that could be taught or replicated. Their research team conducted studies with over 180 teams across the company. They looked at group dynamics and skill sets and personality traits and emotional intelligence, but for a long time they could not find commonalities between the high-performing teams. There was no obvious pattern that overlapped. And they looked at team size, workload, seniority, extroversion, co-location, tenure, individual performance, all the things that most organizations try to control to spark high performance, but none of it actually seemed to matter. What they eventually found was that it didn't matter who was on the team. It mattered how the team worked together, and the number one measure of how that team worked was psychological safety. So every individual's perception of the consequences of taking a personal risk or a belief that the team is safe for risk-taking in the face of being seen as ignorant or incompetent or disruptive. That was the key, key factor for high-performing teams. So in teams with high psychological safety, the teammates felt safe to take risks around their team members. They felt confident that no one on the team will embarrass or punish anyone for admitting a mistake, asking a question, offering a new idea. And this was a kind of light bulb moment for me because I could see huge parallels with self-doubt, with the reasons that we hold ourselves back from doing those things. So I wanted to explore this further because it's been really clear to me for some time that self-doubt causes us to hold ourselves back because of a perceived psychological risk. So if this is psychological safety, what does psychological risk look like? And could that be quantified or articulated in some way? So this meant reviewing the data I collected to create the archetypes of self-doubt, I knew that covering an entire room with post-it notes would pay off, and it has again. So this is where I was able to further clarify what I mean by psychological risk. And this is not what I first thought was a sort of amorphous cloud of fear and worry. It's actually seven quite distinct risks. Rejection, conflict, success, judgment, failure, complexity, and disappointment. So you might feel a response to any of those risks just as I read them out. This is what your self-doubt is trying to protect you from. Now, unsurprisingly, I found that we all seem to have quite a unique risk profile. So I found we have sensitivity to particular risks. 
And I think this is based on three key things. So there's no doubt that our past experience of specific risks, those seven risks, uh, that informs a huge amount of how we feel and think about uh, experiencing those risks again. So if we grew up in a family that was kind of intolerant of failure, we will have um, a real sensitivity to that because of how it impacts our sense of belonging to that family. So our past experiences have a huge impact on the creation, the forming of our belief systems, what we make it mean when one of those risks actually comes true what we make it mean when we are facing uh, a circumstance where there is a potential for that risk to come true. So the second area of sensitivity to risk, I think, is really just about us, our natural kind of personality, our constitution, our ability to bounce back from adversity, um, access to different resources like humor and uh, perspective, emotional intelligence. You know, our appetite for, for life and for adventure is going to hugely inform what we are able to tolerate when it comes to risk. So this is really just about um, how we show up in the world. And the combination of those two things, of who we are and our, our sort of natural, unique personality and our experiences uh, that we grew up with and what we learned about those different risks and what we made those things mean about us, those two things all go into informing the third sensitivity, which I think is about how we approach the current context. So if you're doing something for the first time, if you're doing something you don't really understand or it's outside of your natural preferences, how much it means to you, if you believe there is a lot riding on it, the meaning that you give that current context is going to have a massive impact on how much risk you believe you are currently subject to. And not only that, but how you then respond to it. What I think is really hopeful about these big seven risks and the three factors that impact our sensitivity to those risks is that so much of this can be taught, right? So much of this can be cultivated. We can develop a tolerance for psychological risk. I think that's incredibly hopeful <laughs> and it brings me a tremendous amount of, of satisfaction um, and kind of excitement about where this work can go. So just to kind of recap, um, I believe that self-doubt is here to protect us from psychological risk. It will find a squillion different ways to say, don't do that, you might hurt yourself. We will feel more or less vulnerability around the big seven risks, depending on our past experience, our beliefs about the current context, as well as our own constitution for risk. But what is clear to me is that when a big seven risk feels very acute to us, we will resist it. So our response to that self-doubt alarm is what I call the five P's in episode one. That's how we resist those risks. Self-doubt is there to try and manage that risk, to minimize or mitigate it. And I've since added an additional P. So there are now 
six Ps that form our response to the self-doubt alarm. This is how we resist taking any action that contains psychological risk for us. And these will probably be familiar to you. Procrastination, where we're avoiding the risk. And this can be really productive, but we're not doing anything that actually progresses whatever is feeling risky to us. The second P is perfectionism, waiting until it's perfect, not ever feeling ready, always finding fault with what we've created or ourselves. Proving yourself is the third P. For anyone who's so busy all the time, you're working really hard, everything feels hard, so you don't often enjoy the process um, or celebrate any success. You may feel like you're just waiting to be found out, and this can tip over into an experience of imposter complex. The fourth P is passivity, the ways we numb ourselves from the discomfort. That's the eating, drinking, shopping, scrolling, box sets kind of response. Nothing is required of us. We're just consuming. It's a great distraction. And the fifth P is paralysis, hiding, waiting on the sidelines, feeling a ton of brain fog or confusion, being stuck in research mode, never really taking action. And the sixth P is placating, people-pleasing, having a lack of boundaries, putting other people's needs before our own, lying about who we are or what we want. And this is all about how we protect ourselves from the risks of rejection, criticism and judgment. So over time, we kind of learn what works, what keeps you from taking action, from putting yourself at risk, is really what helps to keep you safe. Now, these can form into patterns. You know, when this happens, I do this. And those patterns can form part of our identity, our internal sense making. I'm like this. This is so me. And this becomes our kind of archetypal response to self-doubt. It forms a sort of unconscious belief system where we're having almost automatic responses to situations that feel risky to us, but we may not understand why we're responding in this way. It's just that when you have a blog post to write, you suddenly have an overwhelming urge to sort the laundry. It's easy to end up feeling really frustrated, like you have to go to war with some part of yourself that is persecuting you. But all you're doing is relying on the ways that you have always protected yourself. Doing the laundry protects you from the risk of criticism. Never celebrating your achievements is a way of protecting yourself from the risk of failure. Saying yes to everyone else protects you from the risk of conflict. Right? We never do anything by accident. You are managing risk in an incredibly sophisticated way that is almost unconscious to you. You're keeping yourself safe. And the thing that I am really excited by around uncovering this aspect of the seven risks and how our resistance to those risks really works as a kind of system is that we aren't fixed beings. We have this tremendous capacity to learn and evolve and grow and we can navigate through all of these risks. 
So this research into the big seven risks has really reinvigorated my work, my sense of mission around this stuff. I'm going to be incorporating some of these ideas into my teaching through your self-belief map. And enrollment for the autumn class is going to open next week. So if you are interested in really exploring all of this, of looking at kind of the root causes of your self-doubt, of where those sensitivity factors may have begun, and looking at how you can build a sort of uh, a much more supportive belief system that will help you to overcome, mitigate and manage those big seven risks in ways that just feel very supportive and ease-filled. Not necessarily easy, but ease-filled. Your self-belief map is definitely worth checking out and you'll find that at sasspetherick.com backslash map. Oh, that went quite high, didn't it? (laughs) Okay, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do go and offer your ratings and reviews on iTunes. That helps the podcast reach more people just like you. Thank you so much. I will see you next week.